Welcome to the Food and Faith Podcast, conversations from the soil and around the table with your co-hosts, Sam Chamlin and Anna Wuffenden. Welcome back to the Food and Faith Podcast, and it is good to be back with you. We are excited today that we get to bring back the first of what I believe is like a recurring guest, uh, our resident theologian, Wilson Dickinson. If you haven't listened to Wilson's previous podcast, we encourage you to do that. But if you have, just a reminder as to who Wilson is. Wilson is a scholar, writer, and a community organizer whose work takes place at the intersection of philosophical theology, sustainability, social justice, and spiritual practice. And he is a theology professor at Lexington Theological Seminary. He's also an ordained minister in the Christian Church Disciples of Christ and director of the Green Good News an organization that works with churches and communities to connect sustainability and Christian discipleship. And he is author of the book that we're going to be talking a good bit about today called The Green Good News, which is just out. And so, Wilson, it is good to have you back and it's good to see you. It's good to be here. It's great to see you guys. It's so fun to have a recurring guest. And Wilson is a good friend of both of ours. And um, this is a book that we have been looking forward to since we first heard that it was in process. So the green good news, Christ's path to sustainable and joyful life is rich and full of many, um, deep thoughts and, uh, really, a, a book for our time. So we're looking forward to talking with you about it today, but first, because this is actually your first time on our show as a singular guest. Um, you've been a good conversation partner with us at um, Wake Forest Gatherings, but uh, we'd like to start off by asking you about your geography. What are the things that have formed you, the, the land, the people, the food, the places that have made you who you are today? Yeah, that's, my answer to that I think is is more simple in a lot of ways than most people, but it's still just so complicated and hard to answer. I mean, so the, so, so the simple part of it is, is I live in like, so I'm, I'm talking to you all right now in a room that was my bedroom that I grew, you know, that I grew up in and now it's, now it's my office. So I, I live in the house I grew up in. I live in a small town in central Kentucky that I grew up in. Um, I share a house with my wife and my son and my mom and my nephew and my sister. Um, and so in a lot of ways, there's, there's a kind of continuity that exists in my life that I think is really rare. But, but at the same time, the town I live in, I mean, and, and I guess it, I haven't always lived here. Um, I, I did, I went to school elsewhere. I've lived in other geographies that have profoundly shaped me. Um, and and I, I grew up in this town. I returned, I don't know, I guess it was probably about eight years ago. So I spent the majority of my life here. Um, but, but even this town has, has changed immensely. You know, it's a, it's kind of a Southern working class town where there's a, a really big Toyota plant. Um, and so the, the geography of this town is not the geography that I, I grew up in. It's quadrupled in size since I was a kid. And I guess an example of this is, uh, right behind the house that I live in now, there used to be this, uh, like four and a half acre field. Um, that had woods in it and hills and even like a little low area where it would get kind of boggy when it would rain a lot. Um, and it was just, you know, this kind of green space that I played in as a kid. And now it's com it's filled to the brim with townhouses and um, like a kind of mini gated community back there. 
Um, and, and that space I think is, is really reflective of the changes that have, that have happened in the town and the kind of changes that have happened, uh, in, in our lives. But, you know, I, I live in Kentucky, but I don't, I didn't grow up in Wendell Berry's Kentucky. Um, you know, I didn't grow up around sustainable farms and, um, and, and kind of deeply knit communities. You know, there's also, so there was, there used to be a field behind my house. Now down the road, there's this kind of empty lot where there used to be this gas station. And um, the, the first year my parents moved here is 1968. Um, I, I was not alive then. I'm not that old. But, um, <laughs> but their first Sunday in church, the minister hold, held up a glass of water. Um, and it was really cloudy. And he said that, you know, that gas station down there on the corner, such and such, um, they have leaky tanks. And it Ooh. runs right over our, um, our town spring. And it's polluted our water. Mm. And that, so eventually that gas station got shut down. Um, it, it got, it, it, and, and it was removed when I was a kid. Um, but now that, that area is polluted. Um, and it's, it's been, that, that field has been polluted my entire life. Um, and, and also there's been like kind of houses next to it that have been kind of run by what, where, where I guess, where you see how environmental justice affects uh, people. You know, there's just mm -hmm. been kind of low income people have lived there in a very unhealthy situation and, you know, all kinds of things have unfolded from that. So I guess uh, I have deep roots in this place that give me a, a, a sense of continuity and loving community. Um, but those roots don't go down to something that feels romantic and authentic. They also, it's always been kind of a geography of, of nowhere that's also been present here. Mm -hmm. um, and so those spaces have, have really shaped me, both that deep sense of kind of abiding love and long-term relationships and just uh, wonderful people. But also, uh, I've, I've also never really felt like I belong in this town. I don't know if anyone feels like they belong to nowhere. Um, and, and so I've also you know, being here has given me maybe some continuity. It gives me perspective on brokenness as well as um, healthy situations. Mm -hmm. Well, so another, another big part of my geography, um, you know, and so w what that word means, right, is geography, right? It's, it's writing the world. It's how we write the world. It's how we understand the world. And I understand the world a lot through reading and writing that comes from other places and other times. Um, and a lot of that for me has been scripture, the poetry, the prophets and the Psalms, uh, letters of Paul and the gospels. But really actually even deeper for me is, uh, in my, I guess my academic training is in kind of church fathers and mothers, mystical and monastic theology. And then what sometimes is called continental philosophy and critical theory. Um, so, you know, I, th there was uh, a time when, I knew the Platonic dialogues or Nietzsche's writings or Michel Foucault's writings a whole lot better than I knew the scriptures actually. Mm -hmm. um, and that's actually what I used to teach at, at, to undergraduates. So, and so, so I guess part of my geography is being in a place and part of my geography is um, all these kind of voices from across the centuries that echo in my head and that uh, it really shapes how I, how I look at the world. And I'm so interested just going back a bit to thinking about your physical geography that one of the things that I think is is maybe a privilege, if you will, of being transient and moving often and 
you know, these things that we kind of think of as a negative thing. You know, I often long for the ability to root deeply in a place. But by not rooting deeply, you have more of an opportunity to overlook that deeper brokenness and that there's something really um, profound and, and humbling and maybe harrowing about knowing more deeply the underbelly of a place. And I think it's something we, we all could learn from, right? <laughs> you know, those of us who maybe aren't as, as deeply rooted long-term to, to look and to ask, you know, I was thinking even the physical image of if you put down your roots in your town, you're going to find that there's some contamination in the water from an old <laughs> gas station in the sixties. Right. I mean, that's like, right. like literally and figuratively there is, is something that we know about our place when we see it over time and we see the effects over time. And um, I think that's such a, such a powerful witness for all of us, whatever our location to hear those snapshots and to go, Oh, this is a family that has been watching this particular place over the generations and can tell you what is happening with the land, what is happening with the people, what is happening with the economy, what is happening with the politics. And that there is, that that continuity is, is informative and helps to have some accountability that we might not have otherwise. Yeah. Yeah. I guess it is, it's a gift and a curse to, to have that kind of yeah. a time scale. And it, it, it's also a gift and a curse to, to live in a place where people uh, remember who you were, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, when, when I was kind of more <laughs> transient, it was kind of cool to like not have people around that remembered younger me. <laughs> I could kind of show up and be like, no, I, I'm, I'm this person, right? You don't have to remember all the stupid stuff I did and maybe I can move on again. And then they don't remember yeah. the stupid stuff I did in my twenties and in my thirties. <laughs> but, but then there's also this gift of, you know, uh, people knowing you and having a, a sense of, of a deeper memory though, though that that's maintained people maintain that through friendships that doesn't have to be done through a place but i mean but but it, i guess it is it is interesting to to feel like you know we've been here for a long time you know my family just moved here in you know late 60s my dad's family um was deeply rooted in another place in in kentucky you know they came over as settlers right um and but even on that time scale you know, they witnessed and kind of engaged in a lot of damage. And so like, you know, all, all the places where we are, like there's, there's so many, like there's, there's so much kind of life to be gained from being rooted. But then also like exactly like you said, you start digging down, you start seeing histories of violence and degradation and kind of hard stuff to face too. One of the things that interests me about your journey, Wilson, is not only sort of the way that place has informed the work you do. Um, and we'll, and we see that coming out in your book and we'll get to that for a second, but also from, from your seat as a professor, as someone who does, um, vocational theology, um, you're also kind of invested in making spaces for other people to explore these kind of ideas and to get connected to place. Um, and so I'm just, I'm just curious, um, in terms, in terms of place, from your seat as a professor, as someone who is involved in environmental, ecological, and food-related justice issues, discuss a little bit the state of those things, ecology, environmentalism, and food in theological education. All right, great question. Well, okay, so I do think that there are some tendencies um, that are at work in a lot of kind of white environmentalism, and they, they, they 
rear their head in kind of eco-theology. And, and so the kind of theology that happens in seminaries and the kind of work in ministry that is, is seen, especially in the mainline communities I'm involved with, that it's related to creation care. Um, and so I, I think that those, those tendencies um, oftentimes are, are really interested in protecting notions of, of wilderness and they, they have a kind of fixation on the non-human world and sometimes don't always see the connections with justice. Now that's, that's just a, especially in kind of mainline communities, that's just a tendency that one of the, the histories of the environmental movement has been um, the constant witness of mainline and prophetic Christian communities to eco-justice. Now that, that voice hasn't always been heard um, and so, so there is a sense in which all these communities I'm talking about have been um, keeping justice at the center better than almost anybody else. Hmm. Um, but there is still a tendency to, when we think about creation, to you know look at a narrow set of texts um, and to think about uh, a narrow set of aspects of, of our lives. So then the care of creation kind of work is, okay, well, we have a liturgy that's somewhere out in the wilderness, you know, and we love the wilderness. Mm-hmm. Or um, we talk about efficient management of our buildings. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, and so then we have, and, and so this is one of the things that work in my white envir- environmentalism where you have a protection of wilderness and uh, management of environments. And, that obscures, uh, I think, the systems that are at the root of climate change, environmental degradation, et cetera, et cetera. And it takes us away from the work of systemic change. And systemic change understood politically and also understood um, locally and communally. And so I think in in theological education, there's maybe still... um, a gap of, of doing that kind of structural and integrative work. Whereas, you know, so, so we maybe talk about the teaching of creation, um, but don't get into maybe how, how that works in the kind of spiritual exercises of our daily lives. Oh, that's so powerful. There's a lot there. I think that that invitation into the structural and integrated really strikes me. And how easy it is again it actually comes back to that image of the rooted in place that it's so easy to think okay well we've got solar panels on our church roof now we're done or we went to the climate change march we're done and that this where we are with the climate crisis is an all hands on deck on all levels, right? And in that integrated, interconnected way. Um, I'm really struck by the fact that this book focuses in on the Gospels and on Christ's path, because I do think that there is, and bless Genesis 1 and 2, we know, we all use it often and name churches after it, Sam. And, um, you know, and it's, there's, there's, there's obviously a foundation there. Um, and I often go to Revelation 21 and 22, you know, these, these two ends. But you really are honing in on, on the gospel and the specificness of, of Christ in that. And I wonder if you could just give us a bit of a, 
overview or an answer to why, where, why did you go there? And what's, what's the inspiration to that for you? And, and what might they find there in terms of a more integrated approach to, to this work from a theological perspective? One of the reasons I went there is because, um, because there did seem to be like a, a gap in the literature, right? And, and kind of the, the stuff that's out there about ecological readings of the scriptures or even agrarian readings of the scriptures, that the, the gospels were largely neglected. A lot, a lot of the New Testament in general is, um, there's, there are these clusters um, of, you know, co- of the cosmic Christ kind of scriptures that get a lot of work done. But then... Not, not a lot of Jesus. So, so that was one of the things that kind of drew me there was just, it was the, the there was a gap there. Um, but then also, you know, my, my orientation, I don't come to issues of environmentalism as like a hiker or a camper or even a farmer. I really kind of came um, in the back door uh, reluctantly struggling with justice concerns. And then waking up to the climate crisis and just not knowing what to do. And then finding the, the profound hope that exists um, and the joy of the Christian food movement. And so the, the Gospels give me, or, or what, I, what, I, what I found in the Gospels was actually, uh, once, I, once I had the eyes to see it, and, and I mean, really it came through reading this enormous literature that already exists on Jesus and empire. Um, what, what I found there was a, a really integrated vision. You know, Jesus, uh, at least on this reading, is, is a community organizer, um, somebody who is constantly concerned with the land and the people and how people live on the land. Um, you know, I guess the, the, the real kind of, one of the real kind of switches for me was seeing how central the, the covenant was um, in the gospels and for the Jesus of the gospels. And, you know, cause, cause there is already this kind of acknowledgement in say some, something like, like, like Ellen Davis's book, right? Scripture, culture, and agriculture, that the covenant is always about a relationship between God, neighbor, and the land. And that, you know, we, we shouldn't look at the land at, in terms of, the boundaries of nation states, we should look at the land as the actual land, as the blessing that was given by God to, you know, to keep until, you know, <laughs> those are, those are good verses to turn to. Um, and that Jesus was coming out of that covenantal tradition um, with, you know, kind of through Exodus with the prophets, um, really wanting to say, we, we need to repair our relationship with the land. We need to repair our relationship with the neighbor, with our neighbors all this is related to problems of empire. This is a perennial problem. And then he had uh, both a, a vision that he was drawing from the Hebrew prophets. And he had it, you know, we see in the scriptures, all these different strategies for creating these emergent practices that built social power. Yeah. And I want to, I want to flesh that out a little bit more because as I was reading, I mean, this, this theme of empire, and creating a theology over and against empire, it really, for me, feels like a backbone for you. Um, and yeah. so we want folks to go read the book, but I, but I did want to ask, 
it does seem the more spaces that I occupy, we're talking about food and ecology and environment. Um, it really is over and against this, this empire theology. And so why do you think, and I know this might be a, a course long kind of answer, but what is it about empire and empire theology that has carved, that has carved away for this food movement to emerge now? Love to hear, love to hear what you all think. I'll I'll, <laughs> I'll take a stab no, at it. No, we're interviewing you, Wilson. Yeah. <laughs> no. Well, I I think that so I think one of the reasons that Empire is resonating now is that well, one of those reasons is it, I think it it captures this deep sense of of domination, right, and and, and oppression, and I think that one of the, one of the things that is kind of especially white mainline churches, or at least me, <laughs> one of the things I've been waking up to, uh, even though I've been, you know, educated and lived in communities that have been talking about oppression, patriarchy, domination, racism, classism, you know, et cetera, for a long time, it's, it's, it's unavoidable, right? These, these structures that are around us um, that are destructive, it's, it's so clear. It's been unveiled, right? That's, that's, that's the apocalyptic part of Donald Trump. It's an unveiling. It's and it's it's an unveiling not of something that's an exceptionally bad person, though he is exceptional <laughs> in the worst ways possible. But he's an unveiling of what's going, what's actually normal. Right? He's he's this cartoonish manifestation of that. Right. So so I think there's a sense in which these structures of domination and oppression are now so clear that we cannot we can no longer live in denial, or at least. I don't know how to live in denial anymore. <laughs> um, I also think that empire is helpful because, um, you know, whereas say certain critique of say capitalism, that is, that doesn't stretch all the way back to the scriptures, right? So there's the, there's a, a kind of resonance that exists with empire then and now. Um, whereas the, the, the specific manifestations of capitalism are you know there's a there there's connections but it's just different um so i think it opens up the scriptures i think it opens up a lot of other wisdom traditions to talk about empire i also think though that there is especially with food the economic structures and uh, that went with empire that are about extraction and exploitation um and the way that that affected uh agrarian communities the way that affected farm workers the way that affected um kind of the economy, those connections can actually be made pretty strongly between, you know, over lots of different centuries. Mm -hmm. um, so, so I think that the empire and, and some of the work, at least it gets done for me. And I think some of the work that it's getting done, you know, and the kind of the, the movements that you're talking about is it gets right at domination, which is clear. Um, I think it, it makes connections across the centuries, but that also, Food extraction exploitation that's that is the that's the machine that makes the empire work then and in a lot of ways now I think that's really well said, and you're right this apocalyptic kind of unveiling I know is part of the story for me, and you talk about the food angle of things, just watching degradation of communities you know I live in a community very similar to yours i mean kentucky is is not rural maryland but it's similar in so many ways and watching that degradation and saying wait a second like we've always been in community one with another what is it that's tearing all this apart and so um so i i just think 
I, I think it's really, it can be really important for those who are trying to figure out, well, what is this food movement and why does it work? Is that it does rest on these larger, um, these larger critiques of the systems that, that we're, that we're a part of and need dismantling and then, and, you know, and invite the church into thinking about different ways of doing things. Um, but I, but, and it's funny, a little while ago, you also, you mentioned Ellen Davis's book, scripture, culture, and agriculture. And as I was reading this, I really felt that it was in that spirit. You take a different tact and there's a different, a different way you structure the book, but the tone and the spirit really felt um, very Ellen Davisy to me. So, for those of our listeners who have engaged with her work, um, you'll you'll find Wilson's book to be a grand companion to that. But it's interesting. A lot of folks have tried taking that kind of Ellen Davis approach to the New Testament, and you draw a lot of attention to Jesus and the cross, and not a lot of folks have been successful. You really have been, and so I wonder for those who are trying to take these agrarian or environmental motifs and look into the New Testament what, where, where was that jumping off point for you? Like maybe it was a particular text or like a theological conviction, like where, where was it that the new Testament kind of opened up as an agrarian or environmental text for you? That's great. Well, I'm, I'm going to pause for a second and, and let my ego swell as you made any connection between what I do and Ellen Davis. That's Look, I'm, I'm telling you, like, like the pref, like I was in the preface and I'm like, Oh my God, it's, it's Ellen Davis 2.0. Like, and it just, like I said, it's structured differently, but absolutely. Like, no, this goes right next to Ellen's tradition. book, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> In fact, I, I think it was actually literally on my shelf next to Ellen's book. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not kidding. <laughs> I think one of the first texts that this really sang for me with um, <clears throat> was one where the, those Ellen Davis connections are so crystal clear. Um, and that would be the feeding of the 5,000. Right, so there's this wilderness feeding um, that happens. You know, so, so, and so Ellen Davis's take on, on the kind of the manna story, right, of, of Exodus 16, is that um, they're out there. The Israelites are out there in the wilderness for so long, um, eating and eating in this way because their hearts need to be transformed and they need to be building a different kind of uh, different kinds of social relationships and different kinds of collective power. Right, so they're out there. They're getting the bread from heaven. So that they, because you can take the slaves out of the empire, but you can't always take the empire out of the slaves. And so there's this long process of them uh, learning how to, how, to, how to live in God's covenant. And so I think a similar thing is happening, um, you know, feeding of 5,000 where, and, and I think this is probably something that this, and this is one of the things that has, that crops up in a lot of different books, people talking about this connection, right? And so you, you have, Jesus is out in the wilderness and he does uh, teaching and preaching and disciples think that the work is over and they're like, okay, time to send them home. They need to go back to, uh, you know, they need to go back to the villages and eat. And Jesus is like, no, 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 no. The essential part of our ministry is feeding. You need to feed them. They're like, well, we don't have the money to do that, right? And they even talk about we don't have the Roman currency to feed these people. And and so and one of the things that I didn't initially have eyes see is you know Galilee is the breadbasket, right, of of ancient Israel. And Luke even sets that story in Bethsaida, which means house of fish. And so 
one of the things Jesus sees is he, he, he looks out and he sees, now these are not just individuals. These aren't just people. These are the farmers who feed us. These are the fishermen who feed us. They have the food, you know, you just have to organize them. And so he tells them, go back to them and, and, you know, talk to them about it. And then he takes, you know, and they, and they, and they gather some stuff up. And then Jesus goes a step further and he says, I'm going to take this, I'm going to bless it, I'm going to break it, and I'm going to give, right? I'm going to, I'm going to show this, this bread is not a commodity. It's not something that needs, that we need to go to the Roman, Roman economy for. This is a blessing from God. This is manna from heaven, right? And, and, and the manna from heaven image in the, you know, in Exodus 16, I don't think is meant to be magical. It's meant to be creational, right? If, mm. if. I think the few ancient peoples, I think large, especially ancient Israelites had a, as a cosmology of blessing. Everything is a blessing from God. And, you know, if you're a farmer, it's probably not, you know, I've, I've never been a farmer or a gardener, but even as a gardener, it's, it's not hard to see, you know, I, I didn't do this, you know, I, you know, I planted the seed, God provided the growth. Um, and so, so anyway, so, so in that story, uh, I saw both this kind of agrarian background, agrarian workers, um, this message about receiving God's, uh, the creation as a blessing, caring for it, and then also part of the task of getting to that place uh, in the midst of empire is a kind of faithful organization. Preach. <laughs> yeah, it makes me think of just, we've talked about this before on the podcast, this idea of there being enough and that reorientation. I mean, the way that you talked about how in the Hebrew scriptures, there was a cosmology of blessing. And how does that just shift everything and turn it on its head? We have such a cosmology right now, I believe, of, of scarcity, of consumption, of, of conquering, of amassing wealth or things or, you know, ego in high places. So if the cosmology of blessing just shifts everything. There's a lot more we could go into there, but I don't want to. I don't want to miss this other piece that is really striking to me, and I think that you you bring out in a way that um, I know that I need to hear and keep wrestling with. You really bring up the skepticism of the modern environmental movement, particularly focused around wilderness, and you mentioned earlier white environmentalism. And this, as somebody who has identified with the white environmentalism movement, and also has a real affinity to wilderness and likes that, you know, pristine East. And I understand some of the critique and the problem, um, but I, I want to learn more. Um, and I know this is, a, this is a growing edge for me. So could you just tell us a little bit more about why is that and what corrective would you apply? Well, one of my, my friends and, and colleagues at Lexington Theological Seminary is uh, Leah Shade. Um, who is a Lutheran theologian, Lutheran preacher. She teaches homiletics and you know, she, she wrote a book called Creation Crisis, Creation Crisis Preaching and has another couple of books that have just come out this year about this stuff. Anyway, uh, when, when we were first talking about this and I, and I was, you know, she, she actually read a, a part of the introduction or an old introduction and she was like, I'm sorry, but the woods are the lungs of the earth, right? The wilderness, we have to have the wilderness. And she's completely right, right? It's, it's, we don't just need to to look down our noses at land that is not uh, occupied by humans. In fact, that's that that those places need to be protected. But 
a, a lot of the places where I think white environmentalism finds its uh, deepest connection are oftentimes like, you know, state parks that have these specific histories um, where like indigenous people have been chased off land so that it can be set aside and so it can become a playground for white people. Um, and so I think that there are specific political structures that surround wilderness sometimes that don't just have problematic histories, but that also can be an obstacle for us even seeing that we live in a habitat, creation is in our backyards, and that that's even where the real issue is, right? So we do need to protect those places. We do need to protect the polar bears. I have nothing against polar bears. We need to do that. We need to protect the, the and I'm not saying that you're fixed on polar bears, but, but. I mean, I do like polar bears. I, I would like them, you know, to continue <laughs> to live, but, well, but so, I hear everything you're saying. Yeah. I, I think, wouldn't, shouldn't the icon of the environmental movement be degraded neighborhoods? Yes. And those, and some of those degraded neighborhoods are like the ones I was talking about, you know, that little lot down the street from me where there's leaky gas tanks. And so then the house next to it smelled like gas. Nobody wanted to live there. And so it was not a good place to live. Um, but then also, I think that we need to train our vision on the weird habitats that I live in of the middle managers of empire that live in like kind of these suburban strip mall spaces. And I think that sometimes our focus on nature obscures yeah. Those in between places where, and that's where the real damage is done. Right? There's all kinds of damage that is done from deforestation. And, you know, I, I don't want to criticize people stopping that, protecting those places. But also, I, I want to, I, I would like our attention to be more focused on um, those spaces that we take as normal and natural strip malls, houses, suburbs. And, and think that that is ground zero for addressing climate change. Yeah, I mean, in the book, I mean, you write, without seeing the connection between socioeconomic structures and ecological devastation, mainstream environmentalism has too readily adopted the myth of the green consumer economy. Like the idea that we can stay in the consumer economy, we just need to fluff it a little bit. And I hear, you know, this clarion call from you, yeah, you've got to actually go deeper that deforestation happens for a reason. Polar bears die for a reason. Australia burns for a reason. And those reasons aren't for another continent. They're actually deeply rooted in our own practices, which comes back to our spirituality. Right. And comes back to your call around empire, right? If this is continues to be the, the work of curbing our consumption and changing our actual core of what it is that we're trying to amass and to you know we're trying to fluff ourselves up right <laughs> right like oh well now I'm green so I can feel good about myself as I continue to make choices that harm the land the people around me that are not aware of the indigenous peoples that are not aware of people who are struggling in poverty that are not aware of the racial inequalities but it's all right my granola box has a lot of green lettering on it so i must be okay and i think that that comes back too as well as to this um you know call it intersectionality or the interconnectedness that part of the call as people of faith certainly the the call that you were bringing out in this book from the gospels is that 
this is not a singular work. This is not about my individual salvation, be it salvation from guilt of my place in climate change or, or eternal salvation. This is, this is something that is, is collective. This is something that is the collective work of within the Christian context, the body of Christ, within the broader context, our interconnected web of life. And that, that we are as culpable and responsible as we are um, called forward to be part of co-creation in that work. One of the things that I've appreciated so much about Christian food movement, you know, and the kinds of conversations that you all host on this podcast and that you all pursue in your own ministries um, is seeing those problems, but also seeing a way forward that is joyful and, you know, life-giving. And I remember one one of my aha moments from reading, which was really just a, a kind of, you know, it's, it knotted together a lot of stuff I'd experienced in gardens and churches was you know, when Fred Bonson's line where, you know, he, where, where, you know, there's all these things to be against and in the garden, there was finally a chance to be for something. Mm-hmm. And, and so I, I think, but I think it's, it's also important to keep the empire in, 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 in mind so that, you know, we're not just kind of celebrating something small and local, but so then instead this, these are kind of, this is a translocal movement where all these different manifestations of, you know, the body of Christ that honor the particularities of a place and the gifts of those people um, are also connected from and learning from all these other different projects, which is again, why something like Carol's podcast is so important. <laughs> Start making these connections and kind of awakening people's imaginations. If we're about awakening people's imaginations in all honesty, I mean, I'm, I'm familiar with the literature and Wilson, Wilson, your ability to do that in this Green Good News um, is simply incredible. So it comes highly recommended for, you know, congregations, for individuals, for community groups that just want to dig down a little bit and want to find Green Good News, which is really about gospel in the life of Jesus Christ. And I was talking to our dear friend, Derek, the other day I had lunch with him and he said, the highest compliment I can give a book he said, damn, I wish I'd have written that one myself. Um, and so, uh, <laughs> so, so we just really want to, want to commend the book to our readers. What, what would make for a good next step for folks who either want to connect with you, hang out with you, read more what you're doing, or, um, or the other organizations that you're a part of? Well, uh, I have a, so there's also an organization called the Green Good News. Uh, there's a web page there. Um, and there's, I have a, I have a blog where I kind of, it's not really a blog I actually keep. It's just a kind of, I, I put stuff that I write on there or, you know, podcasts I'm a part of on there. So they could, they could follow on that. Um, also my email is, is available on that, on that website. Um, and so, and, and one of the, my, my real passion with that, um, project is trying to be collaborative with others and, um, you know, uh, help help with organizing uh, and cultivating and educating around this stuff. So um, I, I don't, I don't want to fall into the, the, the pitfalls of the kind of the entrepreneur that's trying to make something for themselves. I really would like to be collaborative. So love to know how I could, you know, work alongside other people. Also I'm on Facebook. I guess we could become that weird ephemeral 
<laughs> Facebook friend. <laughs> Your feed's actually a really good one. Um, it is. I don't say that about a lot of feeds, so. Yeah. Well, and the people, of course, can find the Green Good News, Christ's Path to Sustainable and Joyful Life in their local bookstore. Request it there or on that other place that we get books um, <laughs> by Will, T. Wilson Dickinson. So we really do just put another plug in for um, our listeners to find this book and, and read it in whatever your context is. I wanted to add in seminary classrooms as well. It's another place that I, I hope to see this on. Yes, thank you. And I certainly, if I have any control over that, we'll be putting this on, on syllabi in the future. The, um, New Testament classes. I mean, come now. There are so many opportunities to, and reasons to read this book. So we always like to end our interviews with asking what gives you hope. I know that talking to you always gives me hope. Reading your work gives me hope. What it is that gives you hope as you look at what is what is this green good news? One of my cliche, one of my answers is really cliche. It's like the young people, the young people give me hope. But are you they, counting yourself as one of them? Yes, <laughs> that's that's fair enough. Yeah, yeah, I was I was thinking even younger. I was thinking, well, so. I was thinking of, you know, Greta, though that's ridiculous because the worst thing we can do is admire her, right? I mean, that's, that's her entire message. That's why her being like Time Magazine person of the year, I, didn't, I haven't read the coverage. Maybe they say awesome things, but it seems like that's ac- actually a mockery of her, right? Kierkegaard has this great line where he says, you know, you aren't supposed to put Christ up on a pedestal. You're supposed to follow him. And by putting things up on a pedestal, you put them at a distance so that they're distant from your lives and you don't have to deal with what they're actually saying. Right. Right. And, and I feel like we do that with young people a lot of times. And Greta's whole message is I shouldn't be doing this. You all need to do something. And they're like, Oh, good job. Yes. Here's an award. (laughs) (laughs) She's like, no, do something. So, so I guess people even younger than I, um, give me hope though. I hope, we don't destroy the world before they have a chance to do something. So, I mean, I guess, but, th- but there is something afoot. There is something, you know, there were that when I was in my twenties, there were all these demographics that said uh, mainline churches, the liberal arts, philosophy and theology, these things are collapsing. And guess what? <laughs> I got older and it's happening. Um, but now there's all these demographics where guess what? Young people are left leaning. Young people, um, you know, or these kind of these generations, these generations. Um, I'm I'm kind of in between generations. These younger generations um, really have a kind of politics that is centered on the common good, and are really deeply critical of a lot of the things that have. They, they actually see a lot of things that are are wrong. So that that gives me hope. Um, another thing that gives me hope, though, is some movements that I see emerging. All right. So, and one of those is the Christian food movement. Um, that, that gives me hope that there is both all this beautiful local stuff that's happening and that people are making connections. And a lot of the people that I've gotten to know through the Christian food movement, it's, it's always been kind of um, in, it deeply encouraging you know, in, in Paul's sense, like, you know, to, it gives me moral courage to see their, their kind of inventiveness and commitment. And I think that something is happening there. Um, also, I, um, there's, there's a, a, 
something that's also recently launched called the Institute for Christian Socialism, <laughs> which is a, a different uh, piece of the Christian progressive pie. Um, but there is starting to be a kind of a coalescing around ideas of socialism uh, that actually gives me hope. I mean, for most of my life, you haven't been able to say that word. Um, and that word has been associated with this kind of deeply repressive and destructive uh, state-centered version of socialism. And I think something else is, is emerging um, that's about recovering the commons. It's about social justice. It's about democracy. Um, that gives me hope. And But one of the practices that most consistently gives me hope is reading scripture with other people. It somehow still surprises me how, how powerful that is for me to, to read scripture with other people, to see this, to, to hear this deep wisdom that reframes the problems that I and we face, that reframes, uh, reshapes my heart. And it also gives me a, a deep feeling of connection to just, you know, it, it, a lot of these are perennial problems. Uh, it's not, it is a shame that we didn't solve them, but these aren't really solving problems. These are like life problems that we're always going to be dealing with and, but that are worth our time. Oh, but so, so scripture gives me hope. Do you all ever answer that question? What gives you all hope? <laughs> I'm sorry. You well, all, you, listen, you can, did I not remind you? We are interviewing yeah. you. <laughs> this is why you're allowed to be a recurring guest. <laughs> you turn it around. <laughs> oh. Well, it gives me hope that, I mean, many things give me hope, but one thing that gives me hope is that this is a conversation that is not dying out. And in fact, it feels like it keeps building. And it gives me hope that we can root deeply in our traditions, in our scripture, in our communities, and the desert mothers and fathers and the mystics and all these places and resources within our faith traditions. And that I think as a movement, and you certainly in this work, bring this forward are we're not sticking with just a conversation about it that this is actually the fuel to continue to move forward with with action and with change and with deep work in the world and so it gives me hope when the when the conversation and the tradition is connected with with active change um and 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 i it is much more powerful when they are together. When, you know, this is a food and faith podcast, right? Like we're looking at these intersections. We're looking at these interconnectedness. We're looking at how is our faith actually the fuel and foundation for, for our advocacy and our work of justice in the world. And it gives me hope to see places where that's happening and to have resources. I mean, frankly, you know, a book like this and others that are coming out, that's gives me hope because it not just because it's a good piece of literature and a book on my shelf, but because it is the fuel that I can use to help to share and it fuels me and that to help to clarify and to look at, Oh, you know what? I really need to relook at that. I need to reexamine that. How, and it keeps us, keeps us in the conversation and the work in an informed and faithful way. And that gives me hope. Guess I should answer this too. Um, yeah, I was gonna about to ask you. You know, I like I, there's so many things. The the ember that won't go out. Um, you know, it 
when I started this conversation, it was like, nobody cares about us farmers up here. Um, nobody cares about what we contribute. Um, and then I keep finding out that people do. Um, but I'll tell you what brings me hope today. It's funny. I was just, I was just scrolling through Twitter and there was this, there's this article that popped up about around, um, Francis Chan, um, the sort of a mega church pastor out in California, um, who's gone through some, who's gone through some odd phases in his, in his spiritual journey. But there was an article posted that he's like, at some point the church abandoned communion, you know, for one guy in a pulpit. And I was like, Oh, if he's putting, if, if he's getting to the point where he's putting communion back at the center of Christian community, he's not far from this conversation at all because you can't talk about the table without then immediately going to, I mean, for me, it's always food issues. You know, I mean, we have bread and wine, two agricultural products at the center of our worship. Um, you can't talk about that without talking about justice issues because it's open for all. And why, why aren't these tables open for all and who owns those tables and who gets to say who comes up? So I'm like, Oh, wow. Even the people who I think are the movers and shakers in Christian celebrity culture are like starting to figure this out. <laughs> and I'm like, well, you know, and, and if that's, and, and, but there's a bunch of us out here that nobody's ever heard of who have had this figured out for generations. And so again, this idea of reaching back, finding these lessons, not to go back to a, to a imagined past, but to point those lessons forward to a preferred future. And that's, that's what I, that's what I read in your book is like actually these, this old, old story that I used to sing about as a kid um, is very much relevant um, for the kind of sustainable world that I hope my kids can inherit before it's too late. So, so Twitter gives me hope on occasion. <laughs> on occasion. <laughs> or should we say that people who post people, things on Twitter. People who give occupy you hope. social media <laughs> spaces. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Well, Wilson, we are so, so grateful to have you on. And, um, you know, you're stuck with us as our theologian residents. So our listeners Absolutely. are blessed by, by that. And we thank you for, for this book and for the conversation and your continued work in the world. Well, I thank you all for doing this podcast and for your all's leadership in the movement. I'm really grateful for that. And I'm grateful for Tom to talk to you all today. And, and I hope I can be like a kind of recurring Saturday Night Live guest. I'm I'm not sure which one <laughs> I would draw a connection. I don't, I don't want to be pinned down. Uh, <laughs> Consider it done. Well, yeah. <laughs> thanks, friend. See you, Wilson. Good seeing y'all. Thanks for listening to the Food and Faith Podcast. Our collaborators are Wake Forest University School of Divinity, Plain Song Farm, and The Keep and Till. And music is by Paul Deemer. Follow along and keep up to date with the podcast on Facebook at Food and Faith Podcast, Twitter and Instagram at Food and Faith Pod, or on our website at foodandfaithpodcast.org.